welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian societies and communes, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. friends, this is Anna, your eccentric yet charming podcast host. This is part two of the story of Jonestown. If you haven't yet listened to part one, go back and listen to the previous episode. I'll wait. Some episodes of this podcast contain disturbing or upsetting topics. Use your discretion for yourself and those around you. This won't be appropriate for kids. If you feel you need support, please find help through a crisis line, mental health professional, or a friend or family member. I have resources including crisis hotline phone numbers listed in the show notes. It was now 1965, and Jim Jones felt he could only accomplish so much in Indiana. And after a failed two-year scouting excursion by the Jones family to Brazil, he convinced 150 of his hardcore followers to move to California wine country, a place called Redwood Valley. There's no doubt that Jim Jones was an incredibly talented orator, but as time went on, his powerful, fiery sermons turned increasingly dark and apocalyptic. He also spoke of a nuclear holocaust coming soon. Redwood Valley had been mentioned in an Esquire magazine list of places you'd want to be in the event of a nuclear holocaust, and reportedly, That's what drew Jim's attention to that particular spot. In fact, he explicitly spoke about a deep cavern in the mountains that would be safe from radiation fallout. At the same time, he spoke on the lighter side about giving their children a more wholesome life. The idea was to set up a rural community with all the work and all the rewards shared equally. Paired with the undercurrent of social justice Jim preached, this was a pretty attractive proposition in the mid-1960s. People's Temple had atrophied badly while the Jones family was away in Brazil for two years. And during the California years, the community went to Herculean lengths to gain back its former size and influence. Temple members, including Jones himself, worked themselves into exhaustion, but it paid off. Their community grew to include several hundred members who turned over their money, possessions, and labor to the church. Quite a few elderly people joined and turned over their social security checks. In return, the church provided for all their members' basic needs. Their lifestyle was spare, many living in communal dormitories, 
And they ate simple, cheap food, drove beater cars, and wore secondhand clothing. While the positive utopian messages of social justice, integration, and socialism drew followers to the flock, Jim used darker means to keep them there. He reportedly had followers turn over deeds to homes and powers of attorney. Even more disturbing were the blank document pages that members signed. Anything could then be added to the blank pages and used as a means of blackmail. Parents who had signed false confessions of molesting their own kids were left powerless if they did want to leave. Once you were in, getting out was another matter. When I first learned of this blackmail scheme, it immediately reminded me of reports from Scientology defectors, and indeed reports of other cult-like methods, such as physical abuse, sexual abuse, overwork, sleep deprivation, alienation from family members, strange and brutal public punishments, and other forms of mind control would eventually come out about People's Temple. Many members reported sexual misconduct by Jones as a means of control. He also started using a lot of drugs and just acting very bizarre. Many of these public punishments and beatings were recorded, and if you hear his demented, high-pitched laughter during some of these strange events, it's extremely disturbing. The more power he gained the more he became unhinged, abusive, and power-hungry. Members were poor, even destitute. They'd given every cent they had to the church, and many had become estranged from relations who hadn't joined People's Temple. Outside relationships of any kind were discouraged. This was an excellent means of control and keeping even unhappy members in the fold. Jones ordered the few who did manage to leave to move at least 500 miles away, with harassment and violence as the consequence for staying too close. One defector recounted having to sign a document giving her children to the church and putting her fingerprints on a gun before she could leave. These types of coercive control methods are interesting because they seem to be in direct contrast to the utopian ideas that the entire community was supposedly founded on. But the thing with any community is that it's made up of individuals, and you can't make rules that work equally well for everyone. At least, so far in human history, the rules of society create winners and losers, when the losers start to agitate or defect, a charismatic leader can turn into an iron-fisted dictator. This is a theme that has come up again and again as I've researched for this podcast, so we'll be coming back to it often throughout future episodes. People's Temple devotees were very much typical abuse victims in that they idolized Jones, even called him father, and blamed themselves for the mistreatment and punishments, only asking what they had done to deserve it and how they could do better and earn his praise and approval. 
Many members did sometimes doubt Jones's tactics, but there was some intense groupthink at play. People thought that if other reasonable people they knew and respected were okay with what was going on, it must be okay. They doubted their own instincts and judgment. One former member compared it to the fable about a frog boiling to death in a pot as the water slowly heats up. Another phenomenon that may have been at play is that many people who hold very strong opinions actually double down rather than reassess their beliefs when presented with facts to the contrary. It's an unfortunate feature of human nature, which has been explored in research regarding people who believe strongly in conspiracy theories. Finding out unflattering or even frightening information about Jones could have caused acolytes to become even more devoted. Admitting they'd been wrong about him all along would have been cognitively almost impossible, not even an option, so the rationalizing and denial would commence. Nonetheless, there were church members who saw hypocrisy. They noted that while Jones preached equality, temple leadership was all white. When a group of members called this out publicly, several people did leave, and this enraged Jones. For obvious reasons, he didn't want defectors telling their stories to the outside world. Jones became increasingly paranoid believing the FBI and CIA were watching him, and he saw enemies and traitors everywhere. Despite his paranoia, he was right to be worried about the defectors. period of People's Temple history, Marceline Jones's quality of life really took a nosedive. After learning of her husband's many extramarital affairs and a resulting child, she'd had enough. She moved to an apartment away from Redwood Valley and began dating a psychologist who she met through her work as a nursing home inspector. She informed Jim that she intended to move away and take the children with her. Jim responded by calling a family meeting, where he told their children that Marceline wanted to break up the family and told the children to choose between their parents. Their sons chose to stay with their father. When Marceline wouldn't be dissuaded from leaving, Jim threatened to kill her, a threat that Marceline took seriously. She stayed. Sadly, this threat would ultimately come true. Marceline was one of the hundreds to die at Jonestown. In another disturbing family episode at Redwood Valley, the Jones's son Stefan overdosed multiple times on his father's quaaludes, twice leaving suicide notes. He later said he wasn't planning on dying he just wanted attention. Even after these incidents, Jim continued leaving his drugs, including amphetamines and tranquilizers, lying around the house and in the refrigerator where the children could get to them, 
Jones had a full-blown drug habit by this time, alternating ever greater doses of uppers and downers to fuel himself through long, grueling, manic days and then turn himself off for a few hours to sleep. In addition to exacerbating his eccentric behavior, it didn't help his rampant paranoia. In the early 1970s, Jones first started floating the idea of suicide as a form of protest against capitalism. This was shocking at first, but he kept floating the idea, sometimes suggesting methods such as People's Temple members jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge or getting on an airplane and murdering the pilot and letting the plane crash. One day, Jones invited his inner circle to a small cup of wine. After they drank, Jones informed the group that they had all been poisoned. After a very tense few minutes, Jones laughed and told them it was just a joke. This was where Jones really became obsessed with obedience and testing his flock for complete devotion. Some think these were essentially dress rehearsals, training members to take the poison for real one day, while others believed these were just sick mind games Jones would play. Either way, it did set the stage for what was to come. Between his paranoia about being monitored by the FBI and CIA and what he saw as the racist capitalist failings of the U.S., Jones was ready to move People's Temple again by 1977. He spoke of the need to be ready to relocate to another country should a dictatorship rise up in America and start putting people in concentration camps. The small South American country of Guyana was an English-speaking country with cheap land and a socialist land, not under too much American influence. People's Temple secured a lease of land from the Guyanese government quite easily, as they were happy to have Americans to provide a buffer along a border disputed by neighboring Venezuela. In what seems like a big red flag to me, but apparently didn't to Jones, the Guyanese government had actually tried to establish communities in the interior of the country, but they all failed. The jungle was too harsh. Virtually all Guyanese people lived on the coast for a reason. The interior terrain was only accessible by plain, river, or laborious bushwhacking through the jungle, so it was sparsely inhabited by only a few hardy miners and indigenous people. Jones purchased some land in the remote, dense jungle and started sending some members to begin building Jonestown, his new utopia. The first settlers worked long hours in the jungle heat to start creating a livable settlement from scratch. They would send videos back to the U.S. showing a very utopian vision of life in the new commune. The reality, of course, was quite different. In the meantime, back in the U.S., the facade of Jim Jones and People's Temple was starting to crack and come down. Defectors had spilled secrets to journalist Marshall Kilduff, 
who published an expose in New West magazine. It was not flattering. Jones realized he couldn't keep the lid on things any longer and directed all the People's Temple members remaining in the U.S. to get passports and head to Guyana. When newly arriving members reached Jonestown, their money and passports were taken away and armed guards manned the gates. For many members, it was now obvious that this was not the utopia they were promised, but it was too late. There was no escape. Now, Jim Jones' facade as the loving, benevolent leader was pretty much entirely down He spent his days ranting over the town's PA system for hours at a time about increasingly unhinged delusions, such as mind control and paranoid tirades about the evil of the outside world and strange conspiracies. It was relentless. By now, many knew something was wrong and Jim Jones was crazy, but they were trapped. They didn't have phones or radios. Incoming and outgoing mail was opened and read, with outgoing letters being sent back for revisions if not sufficiently glowing about the settlement. The town operated like a work camp. Some described it as a plantation. It was overcrowded, primitive, hot, and grueling with 12 or more hour workdays, with remaining hours monopolized by long sermons from Jones, which frequently lasted late into the night. They did make a bit of headway, planting crops and building cabins and even a medical clinic and a daycare. Jones called it socialism. But despite the entire population toiling like slaves from sunup to sundown, the community didn't produce enough food and people went hungry. Meanwhile, Jones himself enjoyed cold soda, a fan, and a comfortable bed in a private cabin he shared with two mistresses and didn't work in the fields like the rest. He surrounded himself with loyal armed bodyguards. Punishments became more brutal and bizarre and included involuntary injections with sedatives and solitary confinement. People were deliberately isolated from their own families, both outside and inside the commune. Sometimes they weren't even allowed to have their meals together or speak to each other. And now Jones began conducting white night drills. The entire town would be woken in the middle of the night taken to the central pavilion and told to drink a cup of poisoned flavorade, a drink similar to Kool-Aid. Jones would be narrating the entire event over the PA system, fabricating imaginary scenarios of Jonestown being attacked and overrun by violent mercenaries. Members would run to the gates to defend the town. They didn't have any way to know that nothing Jones told them was true. 
Then the entire event would be called off with Jones explaining that it was all a test and that if they were ready to die at any moment for their ideals, they passed the test. Jones preached over and over about what he called revolutionary suicide. He used every mind control technique he had cultivated in his followers over the preceding months and years to convince them that they had to be willing to die for their cause. The utopian dream of Jonestown had transformed into a dystopian nightmare. Complete obedience to the paranoid, deranged Jim Jones and a willingness to die at the snap of his fingers. Added to the physical and mental exhaustion caused by their lifestyle, these drills and being kept in a constant state of crisis mode may have desensitized followers even further to the insanity unfolding around them. Back in the U.S., there was increasing alarm over People's Temple and Jonestown. Defectors were still raising the alarm, and a group was formed called Concerned Relatives of People's Temple Members. The group successfully got the attention of Congressman Leo Ryan, who decided to go to Guyana to investigate Jonestown in November 1978. He was accompanied by another member of his staff, some press, and concerned family members. When the visiting group arrived in Jonestown, the residents had had the fear of God put into them by Jones. They told the visitors that they were happy and didn't want to leave. Nothing was wrong. They were putting on a show, staging a perfect facade. But one of the reporters present was passed a couple of notes from terrified members asking for help to leave. When confronted with the notes, Jones called them liars and begged for the town to be left alone. But he finally relented to letting a few defectors go and returned their passports during a very tense standoff in the pavilion. During the course of events, someone even attacked Congressman Ryan with a knife. Eventually, the visitors did escape with a few defectors. They must have felt a great sense of relief driving away from Jonestown that day. But the worst was yet to come. Jones ordered armed men loyal to Jonestown to follow the delegation with the defectors and not let them leave. But there was yet another twist. One of the defectors who left with Congressman Ryan that day was a plant. Larry Layton, one of Jim Jones's most loyal, longtime followers, had been ordered by Jones to board the plane and kill the pilot if the plane should get into the air, causing the plane to crash and killing everyone on board. The other escapees knew something might be up, They didn't believe that Leighton would ever voluntarily leave Jonestown. Ultimately, things didn't go exactly to plan for either side. At the airstrip 45 minutes away from Jonestown, a delay was caused for the escapees when they had to call for another plane to accommodate the additional passengers. When the two planes arrived, 
The second plane, in addition to the original 19-seat Otter, was a small five-seat Cessna. There were still nine extra passengers who would have to remain behind and spend the night in tiny Port Kaituma, where the airstrip was. After negotiating a plan for who would stay and who would go, they started loading up the planes and preparing to leave. At the insistence of the Jonestown defectors, Congressman Ryan searched Larry Layton, but he missed something. As they tried to board the two planes, the Jonestown attackers arrived and opened fire. Larry Layton had boarded the Cessna with a few of the Jonestown defectors, and he also pulled out his gun and started shooting. By the time the shooting stopped, Congressman Ryan, three journalists, and one of the Jonestown defectors were all dead. Others were shot but survived their injuries. A few ran and escaped into the jungle. Only the small Cessna remained operational, and the two pilots fled with one passenger on board. The remaining survivors were left to spend a tense night in Port Kaituma, praying that the gunmen from Jonestown wouldn't come back to finish the job and hoping the wounded would last the night. They were all evacuated the following morning. Larry Layton would later be tried for murder in Guyanese courts, but because the people he'd shot survived, he was acquitted. He was extradited to the U.S., where he ultimately served a prison sentence for conspiring to kill a congressman. After almost 20 years in prison, he was paroled in 2002, when one of the people he'd shot spoke on his behalf at a parole hearing. Back in the Jonestown Pavilion, all hell broke loose. Jones began recording the final minutes at Jonestown. It should go without saying that the 45-minute recording is extremely disturbing, and I don't recommend by any means that you go out and listen to it. That said, it's also instructive, offering an up-close look at the end result of brainwashing, an insight into the states of mind of Jones and his followers that day. The recording is very upsetting and it is not for everyone. But if you do decide to give it a listen, let me know what you thought about it. Jones told the remaining Jonestown residents that after the killing of the delegation, which he described as an attack that he had prophesied but didn't order, they would never be left in peace and that the only way out was to commit suicide. He knew it was over, and he didn't intend to be taken alive. He ordered another white knight drill. No one knew if this would be another drill or the real thing. Jones gathered everyone to the central pavilion and asked for any dissenting opinions. A woman named Christine Miller stood up and began to question why they should all die and why they as individuals shouldn't choose their own destiny. She even made a small plea for the children, simply saying she believed they had a right to live. Unbelievably, other members came to Jones's defense and started shouting down Christine, 
This gives us some idea of just how deep some of these people had gone down Jim Jones's rabbit hole of delusion and paranoia. He'd preyed on their minds until they were completely under his control. Some of the children and younger people in Jonestown had never known a life other than following Jim Jones. The people at Jonestown that day had started out as passionate, talented people full of love and aspirations who joined People's Temple to do good for others and make a difference. But all that was about to end. After some discussion and back and forth, Christine's dissenting voice was overridden. The entire exchange is much longer, but it's fascinating and heartbreaking in equal measure. For a moment, Christine injects some reason and hope into the conversation. It almost sounds like the ship can be righted before it's too late. But Jones and the other true believers ultimately prevail and the vats of poison are brought out. Vats prepared by Jonestown's doctor, Larry Schacht. Schacht must have slept through class the day they taught the Hippocratic Oath in medical school. About a third of the population at Jonestown were children, and Jones ordered parents to kill their kids first by squirting the cyanide drink into their mouths with syringes. Then the adults lined up to drink the cyanide-laced beverage. Not everyone went quietly, but those who tried to resist or run were shot by armed guards or injected with poison against their will. Oddly enough, Jones himself didn't drink the cyanide. He died by gunshot. No one knows why that was, and some people even believe his nurse shot him and then herself, as she was also found shot in the head. I think it's more likely he took his own life. Someone who knew Jones as a child has said that young Jimmy admired Hitler for shooting himself after his defeat to prevent himself from being captured. One of Jim Jones's surviving sons, Stefan, also believes it was a self-inflicted wound given that it wouldn't fit his father's character and megalomania to allow someone else to do the shooting. That still doesn't explain why he didn't drink poison like the rest. Perhaps one final act of placing himself above all the others, asserting his exceptionalism. That's one mystery that may never be solved. If anyone saw Jones die, they didn't live to tell about it. The following day, the Guianese government sent 120 troops to the Jonestown compound. After the calamity at the airstrip, they had no idea what they were walking into through the jungle, but they assumed it could be an all-out assault by the group. After all, there had already been a deadly shootout and warnings going back for months. 
that People's Temple was likely smuggling weapons into Jonestown. There were over 900 residents, including Vietnam vets home from the war, who would be formidable in a jungle conflict. The Guyanese soldiers proceeded painstakingly through the mud and heavy mist that morning, expecting attack at any moment. But of course, in the end, the attack they feared never came. The troops walked not into an ambush, but into a surreal scene of eerie silence and carnage. An anonymous Jonestown victim had written on a scrap of paper, Darkness settles over Jonestown on its last day on Earth. For us, this is the end of the story. But for those who survived Jonestown or who lost loved ones to the poison or the bullets, that day wasn't the end at all. Survivor Laura Johnson Cole was away from Jonestown on that fateful day. And in 2018, she told BBC News, I think if I were in Jonestown and I saw 900 people who I loved make a choice, I can't imagine wanting to survive that. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it, and if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link in the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website, failedutopia.com, or the Facebook page at Failed Utopia Pod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.